0: The book I'm bringing you today, The Bloomsbury Handbook of 21st Century Feminist Theory, is the most comprehensive available survey of the state of the art of contemporary feminist thought. This is a collection of 34 chapters written by world leading scholars representing a diverse range of voices from academia, exploring the latest thinking on key topics in current feminist discourse. Rather than talking about feminism in terms of its waves, it traces feminist history's time through its constitutive vocabulary and, in looking towards the future, considers feminism as a theory that is vital and living. The first part explores the notion of feminist subjectivity, inquiring into identity, difference, and intersectionality, as well as topics like birth, body, and affect. The second examines feminist texts, covering writing, reading, genre, and critique. The third section looks at feminism and the world, from power, trauma, and value, to technology, migration, and community. Including insights from literary and cultural studies, philosophy, political science, and sociology, the Bloomsbury Handbook of 21st Century Feminist Theory has been called an essential overview of current feminist thinking and future directions for scholarship, debate, and activism. This book is edited by Robin Truth Goodman. She's a professor of English at Florida State University, with an MA and PhD in comparative literature from New York University, and currently examines feminist theory as a critique of neoliberal ideologies, looking at how literature and critical theory help us understand and oppose the power of institutions and the social oppressions of the new economy. Besides her many authored and edited books, articles, and book chapters, Dr. Goodman received FSU's Developing Scholar Award in 2009 and was a Global Fellow at University of California, Los Angeles in 2003 to 2004. She was kind enough to join me today to talk about the current state of feminism and what the Bloomsbury Handbook brings to that conversation. Hello, my name is Carrie Lynn Evans, and you're listening to New Books in Critical Theory, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, my guest is Dr. Robin Truth Goodman, who's agreed to talk with us about her book, The Bloomsbury Handbook of 21st Century Feminist Theory. Robin, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for interviewing me. So before we get into the book, I want to start by asking you a bit about yourself. You're a professor of literature at Florida State University. You did your MA and PhD in comparative literature at New York University, and your research now focuses on feminism and critical theory. How did you end up here?
1: Well, when I was in graduate school in the 1990s, critical theory was all the rage. Um, and that was important because it was a kind of lingua franca between disciplines. So you could actually have conversations between dif- disciplines where different people were working on similar issues from different places and it was really vibrant and it was also really political. Like it was a much more, it was much easier to kind of look at the world outside of academia and think about other things besides tech. So I see critical theory as intervening in discourse and understanding about public problems. And this is particularly important for feminism because of the way large scale social forces and institutions like the economy and politics are being reformulated right now along gendered lines. And what I mean by this, for example, is that the domestic sphere of reproduction has historically been treated as the limit to politics and state interventions. And now the idea of these private spaces where women work has been transferred to, say, macaladoras or free trade zones, which are similarly supposed to be beyond politics and beyond the application of national law. Also, spaces of social reproduction are now being reformulated as zones of extraction, like whereas during the era of industrialization, the home might have been seen as a refuge from the economy. Now the home and the family have to be understood as a space of primitive accumulation where undercapitalized zones like children can be capitalized. An example would be the way schools are opening up in various ways to market forces. I talk about this in my book, uh, Gender Work.
0: Well, I wondered if you could talk uh, a little bit more about your personal history with feminism. And I ask only because for me, I was very late to the table in terms of feminism. Uh, I was one of those people that uh, basically right up until graduate school would say, oh, I don't need feminism. I believe in equality, (laughs) which is, you know. Uh, clearly a bit ridiculous, but I have a lot of sympathy for others who just haven't had the opportunity to be exposed to the actual ideas of feminism, as opposed to um, some of the nonsense that just gets passed around in popular culture about feminism. So Mm -hmm. I'm wondering what it was like for you. Did you always have a fairly positive impression of feminism? Was this a topic you were always drawn to? Or was there a catalyzing uh, event?
1: I know that um, I'm a little bit older than you. Um, So in the 1970s, feminism was really mainstream and really popular. So there were all of these things that were going on in popular culture. And I always refer specifically to my favorite uh, record called Free to Be You and Me, which people don't know anymore but you should go ask your mom about it (laughs) it was a record and it was done by marlo thomas with alan alda and mel brooks um and a bunch of other stars of that caliber and it was um and it was something that kids everywhere were kind of uh performing because there was a book too that went with it and it had scripts and you could like perform it and uh and it was um it was amazingly utopic about feminism like I hate housework. You hate housework. We all hate housework, but it's better if we do it together. Oh, my (laughs) goodness. (laughs) And all this great music. You can still see it on YouTube. So that was like um, the atmosphere of that, um, of like just it was so common knowledge at the time. And there was, you know, my body myself had come out and, Roe had just gone through and the pill was just beginning to be widely used. And so there was just a kind of common sense about, oh, of course, um, in this kind of liberal feminism. And then what happened in the 80s was there was a concerted effort for an ideological diminishment of feminism. So you could see, you know, with the Reagan-Thatcher years, you could see masculinism returning, um, family values, which uh, was about separating the spheres, um, and uh, dog whistling around abortion, and all that kind of stuff came back up in the 80s. Um, So in the 70s, everything looked like it was going in a different direction than it actually went in. um, And it was just a kind of common sense that That everybody just was a it wasn't even called feminism. It was just kind of popular culture um, before before that happened.
0: That's a really fascinating comment. Um, it's a shame things didn't continue in that trajectory. But when you put it in those terms, I realize that I grew up in a very Reagan household and a bit of a conservative Christian household. And so I'm, I'm sure that my perspective was shaped by that. But like you say, probably also just kind of this shift uh, broader in the culture towards um, away from the, some of those ideals, which is a shame. So to turn to uh, the Bloomsbury Handbook in particular, which you've edited and compiled, uh, in the introduction, you talk about how in the 1990s, it seemed as though feminism was losing its mojo, maybe even more so than the 1980s there. Um, there seemed to be less interest in it among women generally. And even within academia, there, you say there's a kind of stultification of ideas. So it seems like feminism uh, has kind of exploded back onto the scene recently. However, uh, especially since the election of Donald Trump to the White House, Um, Can you give us a sense of the background leading up to today's context, maybe since the 1980s?
1: Um, Yeah, I was uh, I don't think I said stultification of ideas. I wouldn't put it that way now. Um, I would say that feminist theory lost its po- position as an innovative leader in the field of critical theory more generally, even as women's studies was getting more institutionalized. And there was also an attack on critical theory in general coming from inside and outside the places where it was practiced. Um, there's still That's still playing out now and it has a big effect. In the 80s and 90s, there was a fracturing of feminism. This is talked about a lot. Feminism was criticized within academia for its monovision, its universalisms, and Black feminisms, queer feminisms, and anti-imperialist feminisms were growing as, scholar, as scholarly foci. This was productive, but some of the post-ideological positions that came out of this time after the Cold War were less productive. The goals of feminism got re-articulated to be inclusion in consumer markets and work. Global feminism started, and much of this work was was um, to support the expansion of American power, putting women to work for American profit, and limiting the population growth in the third world. What I think of the current climate with Donald Trump, Hillary and the Democratic establishment ran on identity politics, um, and in particular, women's identity politics, and thought they could use that to hide the failures of the neoliberal economy. And the rise of this form of feminism um, is only helpful to neoliberalism and not really all that helpful to women. So
0: you also mentioned that as part of this current era of a newfound interest in feminism, it can be presented by popular media in ways that are not necessarily helpful. For example, glamour and fashion are often presented as a kind of empowerment in their own right. And there's an ongoing sort of valorization of girliness that in a lot of ways undermines feminist goals by suggesting that women are affirmed through emphatic feminine display. So can... There's a lot of ideas in there. Can you unpack those a little bit for us?
1: Yeah. You know, some of the examples in popular culture, like I I remember when I was writing the book on um, the military, there there was an article in the New York Times about how feminism had triumphed because now pink guns were being sold to little girls and um, that was supposed to be a triumph <laughs> hmm. but the example I use in the Bloomsbury book is Ivanka Trump and in particular her fashion lines um, this is an example of how the symbolic of gender is changing but in line with particular interests so where Judith Butler talks about how we all produce the the symbolic there's this kind of way that um, corporations and certain political interests have taken hold of the symbolic and reformed institutions along those lines. So Ivanka's fashion lines were for professional class women, and it divided up different moments of their lifestyles into different fashion lines. There are outfits for daytime and for nighttime, of course, and accessories, and of course, outfits for travel. And the travel sections were linked on our website to the Trump resorts. And then in her book, she was saying how the women's traits that she was producing in these product lines were good for the new corporate workforce. A-plus personalities, teamwork, flexibility, getting along, the kinds of traits that were being sold in the product lines. So the symbolic of gender she was selling in her product line could then be used for controlling the workforce in her corporation.
0: Another example that comes to my mind is uh, a couple of years ago, there was Some celebrity who did a photo shoot of herself naked sitting on a horse and tried to market this as being um, empowering and feminist because she was so brave to um sell these pictures I guess and uh while a lot of like uh, some friends of mine asked me you know like I feel like this isn't feminist but I also feel like being a man if I try to say something like like it seemed like a bit of a minefield territory for them to to discuss and um Mm -hmm. I just think that's another example of of this
1: co-option of these ideals yeah so there's like the kind that you go to the mall and you feel good about going to the mall like you you've done your political work. <laughs> That's <laughs> that that kind of stuff is anodyne. It's kind of silly, but who cares? But but I think that society is being transformed in in, in the way that people have been purchasing gender. And and it's like getting inside of institutions.
0: So one last question before we turn to the book more specifically. Uh, can you speak to the issue of what's come to be called identity politics in today's climate? It seems to be a rhetorical darling of the left and the focus of some ire on America's political right. And you already mentioned this uh, with regard to Hillary and Trump in the election of uh, 2016, but... So in your introduction, you briefly mentioned the limitations of identity politics and its potential to cause blockages. Uh, so with feminist discourse in particular, you suggest that the identity critique raises the problems by positing a unitary category of subjects that speak as women. So can you elaborate on these ideas a little bit?
1: Yeah, I don't know if I would totally agree that um, that the identity politics is a darling of the left and the and the target of the right. Um, this might be true if you believe that the entire spectrum of political possibility is between the U.S. Democratic Party and the U.S. Republican Party, but actually the political right is all about identity um, and they believe theirs is endangered by others. Um, so white nationalism is, is of course the main example of that. Um, Very true, yeah. Yeah. So identity these days is about reaffirming essentialism. That is reaffirming that things such as knowledge, emotions, character traits, social roles, and experience are hardwired in the body or in the context. One might see this in the response to the great icons of feminist Like Simone de Beauvoir, who talks about how women are produced through their situation, but whose life possibilities are imminent in their reproductive roles. We all know that there are many situations of being a woman, including things that we do while being women that might not be included. Um, in something marked as women's situations. But there is an essentialized reading of Beauvoir that would suggest that women are the way they are and act the way they are and think the way they think because either because of something about their bodies or because of something about their social context. This wouldn't be my reading of Beauvoir. Beauvoir was very much concerned with contesting France's Algerian policies, for example, or thinking about sexuality and subjectivity and situations as multiple. But if someone is reading Beauvoir this essentialist way, when then they might conclude that women's bodies or their situations are constructed as particularly white and particularly privileged so that if you're not white or not privileged, you cannot be a woman in the way Beauvoir describes. An example of where this essentialization of identity would be a problem would be in the resist mo- movement. And we talked about Hillary in relation but uh, to to identity. But um, following that in the resist movement, it was all well and good when everybody could celebrate their defiance by wearing pussy hat. But when it came down to what ideas were being represented by claiming women as an identity, then the movement fractured. Some people had different ideas about being about politics in the Middle East. And this meant they couldn't all be resist women together. So it was really strange the way that people assumed that you, that you in order to be a woman, you had to agree, like that all women would agree on these political issues. Um, but on the flip side, there are better and worse ways to talk about constructivism, which is the other side of um, identity or the other side of essentialist identity. A lot of people think they are done once they've realized that gender is a construction or gender is a performance, but construction is always linked to interests and to power. What are the constructs used for? For example, in my book, Gender for the Warfare State, I talk about the debate on women in combat. Many women came back from the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan and wrote novels, memoirs, plays, and poetry that participated in the political discussions about whether women should be allowed in combat. The people on the pro side were arguing in all sorts of ways how women were just as capable of men and should be included in combat. But in these instances, the military was being shown as a substitute for welfare. People didn't have the money for college, for example, or for job training. And the military would provide such things that the state would be perfectly able to supply in other ways to its citizens. So the construction of women as fit for the military was being used to justify cuts in the softer, supportive arm of the state, even if it wasn't the intention of the authors per se. So even though gender can be thought of as a construction, it can be used to marginalize or exploit women by becoming the common understanding of institutional forms.
0: Okay, let's turn now to the book. Is there a story behind how this book came to be or how you ended up being its editor? I'm also interested to know if Bloomsbury communicated to you why they felt it was important to address the subject now in the way that they have.
1: Well, I think and I'm sure you agree that um, that there are areas of gender that are um, really exciting right now that are not being researched the way that they could be. So there are just under thought about areas um, that are really important to think about. And um, and Bloomsbury agreed with that. They thought that uh, this was an area that was ripe and they wanted to pursue it more. Um, so um, did you approach them then? I approached them at a time when they were looking for someone. So it was just kind of one of those things. Oh, like excellent. Feeding- OK. Yeah, um, and I had this idea about um, thinking about key words in relation to feminism because feminist theory had been um, had been talked about recently in terms of waves, or in particular the third wave, um, and this was about uh, a progressive history and a generational history. Um, which I didn't think was being fair to older forms of thinking about feminism. So, the keywords was meant um, to focus on uh, terminology around which people could organize thoughts and politics. Um, and it was about org- organizing, uh, showing that that thoughts could move and you didn't have to have these ruptures or these generational splits or anything like that. Like we could take stuff from history, the way that words were used before and Um, re-motivate the words or reactivate the words for different contexts. Um, So some of the words um, were words that didn't necessarily belong to feminism, but that feminism needed to lay claim to, like future and anti-imperialism. And other words were words that had been lost to feminism because of the direction feminism had taken, but that authors wanted to claim back, like birth and home. And then other words were words that were integral in feminism, feminism's long history, but needed to be rethought for the present and the future. Words like subject, sex, and the body. Um, so the, that was the idea: it was it was using Raymond Williams' idea, of course, of of keywords, but trying to think that through in a feminist context and what words would be applied to that, rather than thinking of the way that that, that the way history has generally been used in feminism. Mm-hmm as a kind of linear progression.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, Some of those topics, or some of those keywords that you brought up, are those um, some of the uh, areas of research that you were saying you felt needed more attention right now that weren't getting the attention they needed?
1: Well, the chapters and the words came together with conversations with the authors. So I would approach a, a feminist scholar with the ideas that I had for the volume, and I would suggest to them some terms and they would suggest to me what they were working on so it was what people in the field more generally thought that they wanted to work on um, and that they thought were interesting topics so so that's the answer to say yes but it wasn't only my ideas of where the future of gender was going it was a much more communal idea
0: that's great So in the introduction, you talk about some problems feminist discourse has had in the past with its focus on individual agency. For example, equating agency with commercial empowerment uh, is a misdirection that often works to de-emphasize political engagement, as we've kind of touched upon already. Uh, And then there's a tendency to try to measure the feminist success, if you will, of individuals' actions while ignoring the restraints their contact context places on their choices. So you say that one of the goals of the Bloomsbury handbook is to redress this unproductive focus on individual agency by rethinking political subjectivity and rebuilding political, cultural and social life nationally and globally. So this really resonates with resonates with me. Can you speak about that a little further?
1: This is a really hard question because the question of agency is so wrought right now. And the problem of the focus on agency is that much of it the question is, is structured like a bad sensationalist TV show with drama and climax. An adventurous individual breaks through obstacles and is free. Uh, so a lot of feminist agency has been defined through heroic narratives of inclusion like that, like being in the workforce, including in, a male, in male-defined in male work classes, workplaces like the military. But being in the workforce for most people means being accepted into an intolerable system. The question of agency is a question linked to free will that philosophy has long been interested in, especially after thought was secularized. But it also took a new form and urgency during post-structuralism. Um, because of the way that language was working in post-structuralism as kind of a, a dominant way that structured things. Um, and so where did the individual free will rest when we were all born into a language that pre-existed us? Um, I don't know the answer to the questions that agency raises, but I do know that breaking out isn't going to be that easy. An example that comes to mind um, for me, and, and something I've been working on, uh, thinking about a lot lately, is Beatrice or Paul Preziato, um, particularly in Testo Junkie, although a lot more is coming out, um, who writes about taking testosterone to try to live differently with the codes of gendered existence that are available to us. She understands the hold that the pharmaceutical industry has on structures of feeling and modes of expression and existence, so she ingests pharmaceuticals against the rules that the industry underwrites. By taking the drugs, she sees herself as linking up with the whole command economy, not only of big pharma, but also of the porn industry, both of which extract surplus energy by controlling our bodily existences. So her sense of herself is not individualistic. Instead, she is using the corporations inside of her to reinvest their surplus of gender and energy against the rules alongside others who are acting likewise. I don't know if this answers your question, but it may be a provocative way to rethink the problem. I'd like to think it alongside an event like Edward Snowden, who was able to use military surveillance tools to surveil the military and was actually able to change the conversation that way. I also think, though, that reading a lot and learning the tradition of critique do help to see the world differently. And of course, activism is always a place to learn new things and new ways of of thinking. Um, Another example could be the yes-man, who dress up as corporate people and go out and just say the same things that the corporations are saying and they're totally ridiculous um, and they, they become comic characters and it's like a, a parody, but it's a, but it's the parody of using the corporation's own language to expose how hilarious what they say is um, and, and forging a critique that way.
0: Oh, that's really fascinating. Uh, I hope I can find some uh videos of that on youtube hopefully
1: the <laughs> yes men are on on um, are on youtube
0: Okay, excellent. I like that.
1: Um, Okay, so I'd now like to ask
0: you about a term that has only crossed my radar recently for myself. And that is um, this buzzword intersectional feminism. So my understanding is that this term reflects an attempt to capture the many different categories of identity beyond just gender, and mobilize a feminist methodology for analyzing the modes of other oppressions. Can you can you speak to this term at all? And is this a new significant direction for feminism?
1: So this is something that I'm not particularly an expert in Um, and I myself avoid the term intersectionality because I think it is um, uncritical or in the places where I've seen it, um, it seems uncritical to me. And what I mean by that is that one can only accept it as something good. One can't really say that intersectionality is bad or limiting or dangerous in any way because then you would be labeled a racist, and whatever you have to say would be labeled racist, and any, and so anything you had to say would be buried. You can only be in favor of ex- intersectionality or be a racist when I don't find myself particularly drawn to either of these categories, though clearly the first one is better. This means that no thinking on it can happen, and it participates in a culture of anti-intellectualism or call-out culture, culture. When I think about the original usage of the term in critical legal studies, I actually find it useful. Kimberly Crenshaw's insights that if a person is a victim of a crime, then all sides of their identity must be thought about when deciding what the interventions of the criminal justice system should be. But when I think about this more generally, that anytime I think about anything, all the identities in question affect what can be thought about it, and there are, ways, uh, there are always ways a bunch of intersecting identities are involved, then it seems to me too obvious to really get me anywhere. I know others think differently about the term, and if they can make use of it, then I respect that. There are a couple of good chapters on it in the book. I just don't think it's the answer, and I think it's too me-focused, as though all meaning comes from experience, and that one, can only, one can't really think beyond one's own experience.
0: Hmm. Yeah, I would definitely agree with uh with that last point. That for me, that that really highlights the limitations of that term. Um, yeah, okay. I
1: don't know how that came about. How uh, how uh, like a generation of scholars thinks that you can only understand experiences based on your where you're from or what your identity is, and that you can't understand each other. Because this isn't true in, say, Hannah Arendt, where you can have a a a, a politics just by uh, speaking and acting together. And that um, who you are matters, but it matters because everyone's having this conversation together. And everyone's recognizing the importance of the who you are. Um, so uh, this isn't the only way that politics has ever been thought about. In terms of, I can only think my experience through my body. It's really
0: it goes back to the problematic essentializing too that feminism is trying to get beyond, and it shuts down conversation because, um, you know, if you're limited to having an opinion about only the things that have directly affected your life, well then, then we can no longer speak to each other about each other's experiences. It seems like
1: right, and then when is identity small enough? Like, can I only talk about? Curly haired
0: yeah. <laughs> women you know, like. who live in Florida. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, those are very good points.
1: I want to ask you, too, about your
0: thoughts on the Me Too movement because you have some really interesting points to make about its unintended con- consequences. So, first, you point out, and I would totally agree with you, that it has generated a harmful conflation of sexual assault, sexual harassment sexual misconduct, which itself is already a problematically vague term, and then an even vaguer notion of situations which merely make some people uncomfortable. And I'm thinking of, um, I mean, the big example that comes to my mind is the comedian, Assis or whatever his name was. Mm-hmm. That, uh, And I'm just asserting my own opinion here and others may disagree with me, but that struck me as being just a case of a bad date. And the fact that it got swept into the Me Too movement and damaged his career because he wasn't able to respond to something that seemed like very subtle signals. The fact that that was being put right next to, people that were overtly raped um i also i think is problematic as well so you
1: write that or the um, other example would be like joe biden who touched women inappropriately which was terrible but he's done a lot worse including targeted assassin supporting targeted assassinations of american citizens like the the fact that he inappropriately touched is like just not even in the in the ballpark of awful things that he's responsible for and while i would say
0: that yes it makes sense to bring it up and be like hey joe stop it this is everybody thinks this is weird and gross um yeah there's there, we need nuance they're not all on the same level of um of uh, predatory behavior um so you write that this can actually lead to the legislated sexual repression of women, which I think is the really interesting um, objection, like beyond what we've, we've already mentioned. Um, and it frames women's identities in terms of victimhood, which is, of course, also not what we're looking for in calling out the likes of a Harvey Weinstein or a Kevin Spacey. So let's talk about this problem a little more.
1: So one can't really think about Me Too without considering how it came on the heels of a crunch at universities on all sorts of behaviors that were being collected under the label of sexual misconduct. I started to think about this term sexual misconduct when my own university was changing its Title IX policies and sexual misconduct was being used to talk about a wide range of acts that would be subject to discipline. Um, these and and I looked up sexual misconduct at the time, and it actually had no legal meaning or no agreed upon legal meaning. Um, so these acts included classroom speech, for example, when it, when it made some students uncomfortable, which is it's just teaching, right? <laughs> or using yeah. the wrong pronouns, or even walking by a conversation students are having in the hallway and not reporting it. Since faculty were now being to be considered responsible employees, they could get in trouble for not reporting something students told them, even in confidence. And this had a chilling effect on student-faculty relations, on writing assignments, and on class content. My own university was particularly concerned about this new type of oversight because of a very public rape allegation. But other universities were going through similar changes. What was happening nationally was that in 2011, The Obama administration was having a lull in the polls and they decided to renew energy around their agenda by focusing on three hot issues, healthcare, immigrant children, and Title IX implementation at universities. In terms of Title IX, a Dear Colleague letter was issued from the Civil Rights Office that gave instructions, but the instructions were contradictory and not enforceable, especially given academic freedom protections. Yet some universities jumped to the punch. All three of these agenda items were badly imp- implemented by the Obama administration. With the exception of healthcare, they were actions made under the sole authority of the executive branch. So that, as you see now, they could all be dismantled by a different executive, and even healthcare was left on unsure footing. The, the Title IX changes were the last thought out, the least thought out, but created a kind of moral spectacle. This also ended up favoring the right in some ways, or at least in Florida, the idea that women on campus were being massively raped was being used by the NRA to argue for allowing guns into classrooms. As for Me Too, the Title IX situation had already put in the public eye the idea of kangaroo kangaroo court-like situations where universities were made to do investigations on their own and have mini hearings based on different standards of evidence than in real courts and where accusations served as their own evidence and people could be tried by the media. The question for me, too, is whether all these declarations of sexual assault actually changed anything, whether women are any better off now in the workplace as a result or any less exploited, or whether the conditions that allow sexual harassment in the workplace or elsewhere have been dealt with at all, including racism, sexism, and transphobia. The fact is there needs to be legislation that would hold perpetrators responsible for sexual aggression. This is not impossible. Right now, an employer just needs to show that they have done the requirements for making the environment safe according to the law, and then they can wipe their hands of it. This can be changed. Legal changes have been made in other countries.
0: You also make some fascinating observations about Hollywood's response to Me Too, pointing out that despite all the 2018 nominations of movies with female characters... Their common theme seems to be that mothers are to blame when bad things happen to their girls. Uh, Surprisingly, just because you have female characters doesn't make a movie feminist, necessarily. So you say that this echoes a tendency within feminist ranks of blaming earlier generations for the political, social, and discursive limits imposed on them by their contexts. So can you tell us what this is about?
1: Well, in that year, um, four movies were up for an Academy Award. Um, that blamed mothers for everything that was wrong with girls' lives, including brutal sexu- sexual attack in Three Billboards, but other forms of exploitation in the Florida Project, Lady Bird, and I, Tanya. These movies are, contrast sharply with another movie that came out that year, Taylor Sheridan's Wind River, about an investigation into a girl's murder on a Native American res- reservation. Not to give it away... Yeah. Spoiler alert. <laughs> yeah, But it turns out that the girl's disappearance and sexual assault weren't the mother's fault, but rather the fault of the racism that infiltrates Indian policies in the United States and the presence of white contractors working for a, for a logging corporation that had gained rights to the natural resources on the reservation. This movie didn't get in any mentions in the Academy Awards that year, maybe because its analysis was too complex and not about the drama of personal relationships.
0: So now I'd like to ask you about the connection between feminist theory and literature. Uh, I noticed that many of the authors in the Bloomsbury Handbook are literature scholars, and you in fact edited a book about precisely that connection only a few years ago called Literature and the Development of of, uh, Feminist Theory. Uh, And in the introduction to that book, you assert that unlike any other theoretical enclave, feminist theory has had a particularly fervent relationship with the production of literary texts. So I'd like to start by asking you, why is that the case?
1: You know, I love this question, and um, I'm very interested in it, um, because literature right now needs to be defended for what it does. Um, and uh, people are dismissing it as marginal, but I don't think it is because it's uh, still its narratives are still really important, and it's um, and what it does to language is still central. Um, so I've been interested in this for many years, um, and I saw that feminist theory scholars were also engaged in authoring literary texts of all sorts, like novels, plays, memoirs. Um, For example, Simone de Beauvoir wrote uh, the great novels, The Mandarins and She Came to Stay and a bunch of memoirs that are also really interesting. And Kristeva, against what you would expect with her critique of the symbolic, but she wrote a a detective novel series. So she writes genre fiction, but she also writes other kinds of things. Um, And as for Monique Wittek, most people go to her novels to get her theory because it's more interesting than her actual theory. So I saw this tendency as particular to feminist theory and not necessarily typical to other theory fields. It was like all of the feminist theory, theorists were also writing literary texts and I was wondering if there would be a, if anything could be said about it. Um I found a particular answer to this that applied um to the 20th century or you know post 1900 contexts and did, didn't really apply to other contexts. Um I came to the conclusion with Adorno that literature is about the negation and or destruction of the world as it is. Feminist theories writing about literary works that tended, that, that preceded the 20th century or in other contexts found other answers. And the book uh, talks about Mary Wollstonecraft, but it also talks about Sheree Maraga, Marraga um, and it talks about Octavia Butler. So there are other places where um, different ideas of what literature does Um, for politics uh, were brought up by the writers um, and that's what the the book addressed the literature and the development of feminist theory that's that, that was what it was addressing that question
0: oh that's fantastic um do you have a favorite author of feminist fiction if i can use the term is there such a thing uh and if you do um can you tell us what it is about her work that speaks to you in particular
1: so feminist fiction was something that came up when, um, when we were first thinking about literature and the development of feminist theory, um, because when I started to say I wanted to look at this topic, um, people thought that it would be a book about writers like Doris Lessing, like writers that actually wrote about feminists. I wanted to do something very different, which was to think about, I, I have nothing against Doris Lessing and I have nothing against that sort of book if someone wanted to do it. But what I wanted the book to be about was um, how fiction writing or poetry or drama writing could contribute to a political project. So I wanted to think about the what we call literature literature. Um, can we still think about that term and how it could could contribute to moving us to a different place politically? And I wanted to ask the question of, of what literature did for politics. Excellent. So the question of favorite as a literary scholar, I always find troubling, like choosing which one of my children is my favorite. I also think that what I like is a question of taste. And I'm with Bourdieu in thinking taste as a matter of social positioning. Hmm. I'd rather talk about works that are impressing me or influencing me lately. I think a lot about Margaret Atwood's Oryx and Crake trilogy. I'm interested generally in science fiction these days, which is your field. So you probably have a lot more to say about it, but I'm feeling science fiction is necessary for the way it forces us to think beyond the present yet in terms that the present offers Recently, I've read Arundhati Roy's The Ministry of Unmost Happiness, Hong Kang's The Vegetarian, and Jordi Rosenberg's Confessions of a Fox. All of these, I believe, will influence my future work. Virginia Woolf would be up there. Virginia Woolf was the author that I wrote about in literature and the development of feminist theory. Um, Actually, A Room of One's Own was such an urtext for me when I read it in high school, as it is or was for a lot of people, and maybe it is worth talking about the implications of that, a whole generation of people who were really turned on by that book and became feminists in relation to it. Um, Wolf positions the feminist subject as victimized and excluded, and the university as a site of freeing her from that if this is even a feminist subject, which critics have been divided on. If this is feminism, then we need to think a lot more carefully about what we want the university to look like. For example, Wolf assumes that the university is a place where young people go to read the great works of human history. So she's a humanist, and she thinks the university is also humanist. But what would she think about the way vocationalism, technology, and STEM have taken over at the expense of the humanities?
0: I found it really interesting, too, the way her classism was revealed in her writing, uh, which is something you touch upon in, um, in your chapter. Uh, because uh, as I was reading and she was talking about, it seemed like she was really surprised that women of a lower class could produce um, letters that she found mm-hmm. worth reading, maybe.
1: <laughs> right. Right. And, she was, uh, and that they had creativity at all was surprising to her but that she wanted to use that creativity to talk about what fiction was, that she thought that she kind of gave it a primacy. Well, I'm
0: interested to hear your thoughts on feminist voices outside of academia.
1: Uh, I wonder
0: how any particular narrative about feminism or particular feminist philosophy does or does not attain legitimacy. I'm thinking in particular about the wide swath of young women who aren't familiar with academic feminism, for example, and who may all share a set of ideas that are antithetical to those found in academic literature. So is there a point at which that group reaches a critical mass to the extent that it justifies being treated as its own version of feminism? Because my impression is that academic feminism, for all its multiple voices and views, doesn't itself represent them all. So it's kind of the old who decides what is canon question. I wondered if you could speak to that at all.
1: Well, I'm not sure I'm agreeing with the premise that there's something called academic feminism that stays within the borders of the academy. If you read the latest preface to Judith Butler's Gender Trouble, she talks about how her work on gender informed a whole generation of activists um, and actually brought the whole, you know, the whole, say, queer movement out in a certain way or gave them a kind of intellectual bearing. so even the, even though the book was criticized by ac- other academics as having a style that was too obtuse, uh, no form of so- social change can happen without thinking, reflection, and therefore theory. So I don't know if I don't know what ideas you are seeing that are antithetical to ideas found in academic literature. Maybe you could elaborate on that.
0: Yeah, I guess I'm going back to um, uh, well l- like I mentioned, uh, prior to my exposure to much writing, my impression of what feminism was, was just cobbled together from popular culture. And, uh, and so, and there's a lot of, um, uh, men's rights type of anti-feminist, um, rhetoric that's out there, like to tell you that, uh, feminism is just a bunch of really embittered, angry lesbian women who hate men and they want to flip the script so that women dominate men. Or this idea that, um, when, when a Female character in a movie beats up men uh, in some kind of stylized, um, uh, overtly sexualized kind of context. That this is a feminist script about women being strong, physically stronger than men, and they'll say, "Oh, isn't that stupid? Women aren't stronger, like physically stronger than men." And of course, feminism is n- actual, but there I go with the with the, the problematic term. Real feminism has never made those kinds of assertions. And I, there was a project a couple years ago that somebody made a compilation of videos where they interviewed just average young women and said, what is, is feminism important to you? Uh, is it something that you believe in? And a lot of them sounded like I was years ago, which was, no, I don't believe in feminism because I believe in equality. And I'm tempted to say, you simply don't know what you're talking about. You need to be better informed. Here, read some theory. But I worry that Um, There's a point at which that becomes kind of white, uh, ivory tower thinking. Sorry, not white, but ivory tower thinking. And um, clearly there's some positions that I think one could argue are just out and out wrong. But I would imagine that there's room for a middle ground as well, where you could have women that um, form their own notions of what feminism is that don't necessarily have a lot of exposure to academic writing.
1: I suppose, although I do think that most of those popular culture uh, representations also have certain kind of philosophical backing. But what I would do with, in that situation of feminism is about equality is ask, for examples, and or ask what they mean by equality and say, well, what about parental leave? Do you think that um, women shouldn't get that because they that would mean that they weren't equal or like give examples where you can actually try to think out the way that equality um, might look um, and try to move them forward. But the word feminism itself is part of the symbolic, right? It's it doesn't really have a reference. And so people need to lay claim to it. And um, my idea is that you take anyone who. Claims that they're a feminist and try to work with, you know, moving that symbolic to a different place um, with them. Um, so that, you know, they don't think it's about burning bras on the moon. Although I, I would be fine with burning bras on the moon. Um, that
0: was literally the extent of my feminist knowledge. When I was younger, my mom told me that feminists, were they burnt their bras and I should never do that. That was a terrible idea.
1: And also they don't shave. <laughs>
0: yes, exactly, exactly. This 1970s stuff, yeah.
1: That was part of that backlash. That was like, you can trace that to a time when... It came out in the news that this is what feminism feminism was.
0: Well, so. that leads into my next question, actually, because um, I wanted to bring the conversation back to the personal. In this, uh, to the extent that I wondered, from your own personal experience, are you sensing through your interactions with students on campus or otherwise that feminism is a topic that young people are more interested in? Do you do you sense that there's it's making a turn and becoming? Um, Uh, moving away from the backlash, I guess. Do you have conversations with people outside of the classroom who are intellectually engaged and emotionally invested in these kinds of
1: topics? What are you experiencing? I've always experienced that. Um, I always experienced that. Like uh, one semester, I don't remember how long ago it was, but I taught um, two senior seminars, one in Marxist theory and one of feminist theory. And the radical people were in the feminist theory class. Marx was just an old philosopher. Feminism was where the edge was. And it was just so fascinating to me because I didn't expect that. I thought I'd get more liberals, but I didn't. I got people that were bending categories in all sorts of ways in that class, in all sorts of different disciplines. I had a woman who was majoring in physics. I mean, it was just so... Interesting to see who was being called into this category. And recently, what I and and, and another story from that is that many years after that, um, I met one of the students from the feminist theory class at the occupy. Cause I, Tallahassee is a small town, but it did have an occupy. And um, and he said, you know, I took your class in feminist theory. Um, I had just come back from the Iraq War. Um, I have come from a conservative Republican family. They didn't know why I was taking your class. Um, But my class was the bridge between being a a soldier in Iraq and coming to Occupy. And I was like, well, I can retire now. Like, this is everything. (laughs) (laughs) That's so fantastic. But recently I've been, I've been um, hearing from students, uh, um, graduate students, who want to take my classes and want to write their dissertations with a feminist content. And I think that, that that's a sign. And it's really recent, like in the past month or so, that I've been noticing much more of that, of people that want to engage in this. Um, and, I, and I thank Trump for that. I was going to say, I feel like this
0: political climate right now has just engaged people, uh, especially young people, to realize that politics really does matter in their lives. You know, it's not just this abstract thing out there that maybe changes your taxes or something. Like, it really impacts people personally. So, um, mm-hmm. yeah, so perhaps that's a part of it. But that's really encouraging to hear. And
1: the young people also... Um- understand the symbolic in ways that are a little bit um uncomfortable maybe for older people um just the 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 gender doesn't matter for them as much Uh, i mean it matters more in a lot of ways but um, the the gender that you can manipulate it in much more ways than than anyone thought of before um and you can um wear it differently and i think that's really exciting and, the, and the, that they want to think about it, that they want it to enter their thoughts. So it's not just about, um, you know, Caitlyn Jenner wanting to paint her nails, but it, that they actually want to create new thought around it. I find that exciting.
0: That's really interesting that you, yeah, you're because you're right. I have a 15-year-old son and um, I mean, his views are so liberal about being um, t- totally nonplussed about gays, whatever, you know, it's all good. Everybody just is who they are. And, um, mm-hmm. and that kind of open thinking with, but connecting that to their willingness to, or their ability to approach symbolism differently, I think is a really interesting idea. Well, that's a really positive note. Uh, Robin, I'd, I've taken up a lot of your time. I want to thank you again so much for agreeing to come on the show, but before we go, can
1: you tell us uh, what you're currently working on? I just finished a monograph that came out with um a press. It was the first book of a new academic press called Lever Press, which is totally open access online for free. and it's run by um or 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 backed by um, liberal arts libraries. So like at Amherst and Williams, um there's like thirty of these colleges, libraries that are supporting this press, Um, and it's an experiment in um, multimodal publishing. Um, My book isn't particularly multimodal, but um, I'm really excited about the idea that things can come out for for free and be um, more accessible. And the book is about literature and debt, so it's the same question of what can literature teach us about politics and starts in the 19th century, jumps around the 20th and is is uh, and asks about what makes us believe in something that's just not there so links um debt to literature in that way and thinks about the puerto rican debt crisis um through the terms of um 19th century literature um so that just came out and um i've been catching up on smaller things um essays and the like and i'm um, uh And I'm also working on an edited collection on Adorno called Understanding Modernism, Understanding Adorno, Um, and just starting another book project as well that will be on feminist theory that will take up a lot of the themes in the introduction of the Bloomsbury Handbook.
0: Fantastic. Those all sound really good. Well, thank you again. I really enjoyed your book. And I was so glad I
1: really enjoyed talking with you.
0: (laughs) Oh, good. Oh, it's been really great. Thanks again. Um, Hopefully you'll come back when you have future publications out. I'd love to have
1: you. I would love to talk with you again.
0: I want to thank you for listening to New Books and Critical Theory, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Once again, I'm Carrie Lynn Evans, and I've been speaking with Dr. Robin Truth Goodman about her book, The Bloomsbury Handbook of 21st Century Feminist Theory. If you enjoyed this podcast, please write us a positive review on iTunes, post about us on social media, or tell a friend. The New Books Network is a not-for-profit organization, so all the buzz you can help us generate goes a long way to supporting this work. I'm also interested in hearing from you about your thoughts on this podcast and the material we cover. I'd love to hear from you about your thoughts on this book, for example. Does feminism play a role in your life? Is it a topic of conversation among your friends or family or co-workers? I'd love to hear your thoughts. You can find me on Twitter at Carrie Lynnland That's at C-A-R-R-I-E-L-Y-N-N-L-A-N-D. Do you have a book you'd like covered on one of our shows? Contact us through our website, newbooksnetwork.com. Also, be sure to like the New Books in Critical Theory channel on Facebook and Twitter, where you'll see every time we post a new interview. In the meantime, I'll wish you au revoir from Quebec until my next conversation about new books.